This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. Over the next few weeks, we're dipping into the archives of bold women in history, starting today with three sisters. Phyllis was most outspoken about everything. She was a charmer. Isabel. And the younger sister, of course, was the beauty. You know, people would look twice, you know, at her in the street. And I know that Paulette was supposed to have been the leader of the clan. I, I mean, Paulette has always been, was the most bohemian of Three sisters who burned short but bright on Sydney's silent film scene of the 1920s. 90% of Australia's silent films, you could even say the world's silent films, have been lost. But what remains of the McDonough sisters' films tells the story of three headstrong siblings, Isabel, Phyllis and Paulette, who forged ahead when education, gender and technology stood in their way. They, they so much became one. They would never have bought a hairpin without consulting each other. That's Paula Dornan. She was the youngest member of the McDonough family, which made her the youngest of Paulette, Phyllis and Isabel's siblings. See, they slept in the same room and they would be in the midnight all talking all night. <laughs> if they went to a play, they'd drag it to pieces and they would, uh, that would take up a night session. But no doubt in that bedroom, everything was thrashed out. And I'm Graham Shirley. I've worked a lot throughout my career, not only as an oral historian, but also a film historian and occasional documentary director. I've recorded a lot of oral histories with and about Australian filmmakers. The McDonough's were the only three-person collective of, of women filmmakers that I know of in the, in the silent period. In fact, probably of any period. They were young, they were glamorous, they were photogenic, they were highly intelligent. There was a newspaper article that I found which said the McDonough sisters with their unusual personalities generally get what they want. And it really was a mixture of charm and determination and their absolute confidence with their place in the world. And this had come very much from from their upbringing. Testing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. In those days, the McDonough's when there was a lot of stage plays on, more than we have now, they always entertained all the stage people that come there for after oh, stage right, parties. After oh, they, it was a fantastic house. Sheila Collingridge was married to Gordon Collingridge, Australian silent film actor. She was also a lifelong friend of the McDonough's and she attended a few of the McDonough family parties in her time. You'd arrive around there at 8 o'clock at breakfast time, there's still an evening dress. Yeah, and about nine loaves of bread outside and, and about eight bottles of milk. They hadn't been out of the house for five days to pick them up. They'd have these wild... Oh, sort of they... Well, they're really fun. Tomorrow night after dark town's good as Daddy loved theatricals, mm. you know. He had a beautiful singing voice. Paula Dornan. So he was only um, a doctor to J.C. Williamson's, who were the main theatre owners at that time. And all the celebrities that came out, it was a ritual on a Sunday night. They were entertained 
but I, they all performed too. <laughs> they didn't just come for dinner, I believe. The girls used to tell me they were not allowed in. They were probably teenagers, you know, young teenagers. And they would sit outside, listen to these magnificent artists, violinists, pianists, singers, you name it, you know, mm. which was a wonderful experience for them, wasn't it? During Dr. McDonough's lifetime, that sense of wealth and entitlement continued. But once Dr. McDonough died, at a comparatively young age in 1920, his true financial situation became clear. It was, it was then discovered that his savings, at least in 1920, were fairly meagre. Mother then found that she would not be able to look after seven children with what Daddy left. Mm. She would have to do something. Both Annie McDonough and Isabel ran a nursing home, and the venue that they had for the nursing home was Dremoyne House, which was a historical mansion on the shores of Sydney Harbour. And it had 40 rooms. In front of the building itself was a lawn with a great statue in the middle and all the gravelware, driveway around it, you know. And then the trees were so magnificent. It was interesting that the McDonough's, as part of the projection of their persona, talked a lot about Dremoyne House and talked about how, how proud they were of the fact that they lived in a colonial-era mansion, which was a bit of an architectural jewel in, it, in its own time. When Mother died, they were like a ship at sea, and Isabel was the only anchorage. Mm. Everybody looked at her. So she was like a, a mother and father rolled into one. All into one. Took all the family responsibility. Mm. She saw the bank managers. She wrote the checks. She did everything. That's why I'm so glad that um, you know uh, she went into pictures because she was so beautiful. Isabel was walking down the street one day in, in Sydney and Beaumont Smith, well-known filmmaker, approached her and Stopped invited them. her to have a screen test. He said, had she ever thought of uh, going um, into pictures? And she was loved. And anyhow, he asked if she'd come down and have a screen test. And uh, she went and she got the leading role straight away. <laughs> She's got mink and sable fur. She's the blonde that men prefer. Oh, yes, sir, she knows her onions. All of this gave the McDonough sisters the confidence to know that the role of women at that time didn't need to be um, getting married as quickly as possible and producing children, that at least for a few years they could, they could be professional filmmakers, which is what they became. The McDonough sisters and Paulette in particular were avid fans of Hollywood films. They would attend films together, but only one of them went back on a repeated basis. That person that went back was Paulette. I used to start in the mornings and I'd sit there and love the film, eat it up. Then I'd go back to the afternoon session. This was the same film? 
the same, the same film. Yes. And I'd go at night there, but I'd forgotten. I sat and wiped my mind to see if I liked the film first. It didn't do anything. For the afternoon and the evening session, I just stayed at it. Now, I saw where they took a close-up, where they took a middle shot, where they took a long shot, and what that meant to get it real. Now, there was an acting advertised in a paper, an acting place in Oxford Street, Ramsey, I think the name was. Oh, P.J. Ramster. Ram, uh, what was it? P.J. Ramster. R-A-M-S-T-E-R. Yeah. -E oh, yes, Ramster. Yeah. Oh, he was a funny bloke. Yeah. But Paulette clearly thought enough of Ramster, that funny bloke, to be favourably disposed to employing him on the McDonald sisters' first feature. Well, I thought that I could have somebody hmm. to tell me what to do when I hmm. started. So I went to Ramster. Ramster said, oh, my God, I care for that. They didn't just say, well, now um, we'd like to do a film and that sort of thing. They had no money there, anyhow. It was just that a, a fairy um, godfather and say of America came to life. A mother's uncle or brother, Uncle Ernest, anyhow. He left money. In those days, which was quite a bit, 8,000 pounds. The shooting of those who love commenced, but by the second or third day of production, however, Paulette noticed that Ramster was going against her script. He was at his worst. I knew what I wanted him to do, and he'd tell them the wrong thing. He was doing opposite to everything that I'd written. He was a, a cheat, an amateur I've ever seen in my life. I said, I'm doing this anyhow. I said, I've done it all along. And I had a fear, thinking I'd learned something. And it was a horrible awakening, and she had to get rid of him. She said later that she sacked him, but she didn't actually. She, she kept him in the background as an advisor. When the McDonough sisters started filming in the mid-1920s, Isabel was 27, Paulette was 25, and Phyllis was 26. The McDonough sisters' three silent films, Those Who Love, The Far Paradise and The Cheaters, were all romantic dramas, and they were essentially about young love coming up against parental differences. Do you remember whether all the money that Uncle Ernest had sent over was used on the film? Oh, heavens no. Oh, no, gosh. They only spent a £1,000 on those who love. See, Dremoyne House was just a natural, you know. It was a great location. And just our own furniture. It was just a case of bringing in the cameras, you know. Oh, God. We used our bedroom. We used the bathroom. We used the lavatory. We used every inch of that house and up those stairs, up and down with that camera. Oh, I know. If people knew how those films were made. Paulette was the writer-director. Phyllis was the art director, the production manager, and the publicist. Isabel was the female lead, whose stage name was Marie Lorraine. But Isabel also played a role when it, when it came to the scripting. Between takes, there was always lots of vigorous discussion between all three sisters as to what they should do and the way they should do it. Now, what would happen, I suspect, with the McDonough's? They were very, very sensitive in so much as they could put themselves into a given situation and believe it, and therefore respond emotionally and then relate to the other person in those terms. 
Hayes Gordon was a highly influential figure as the man who introduced the Stanislavski-influenced method acting to Australia. He established the Ensemble Theatre where Isabel and her three children appeared in productions between 1958 and 1961. When she was on stage, we knew she was on stage because she knew where she was. She observed things as, as one would in everyday life. And she responded according to what she observed. And... Uh, fine attack. When anything had to be done, she didn't ease into it. She did it. Mm. Got stuck into it immediately. Isabel was a great believer in naturalism on screen and, and on stage. She played a very strong, very decisive role in throttling back what otherwise might have been fairly unbridled melodrama. She had the ability to, to use her face as a basic uh, map of emotions and that for a silent film actress was a, was a very great talent. Now, I'll tell you little bit This is the clutter. Now, you've got to look. You look at his eyes and everything moved. I do. She didn't believe in simply entertainment for the sake of entertainment. She always wanted something for the audience to carry away with him. They felt there was a need, an opening for something different. You know, they felt that something more could be done in Australia than this awful sort of hayseedy, uh, farcical sort of things that were being turned out in the name of Australian films. It was bush films that most people identified, I think, with Australian yeah. filmmaking at that time. It was like breaking new eyes. Paulette also had, well, I don't know whether you could call it a dream, but she aspired to see our community here grow into the 20th century. She'd love to have seen us join the world, as it were. Each one was better. Those are alive, and then one made the Farb Cathedral, so I was so upset. Oh, the the, the oh, cheetahs? No, no, those are alive. And then the cheetahs, when they were so much better than the Farb Cathedral. And then the two minutes silence, that's the parts of more. So if they won, that went on, I got better than better. Now, McDonald's? Sheila Collingridge. Uh, especially Paulette, are completely convinced, and not only convinced, they're, uh, that they're sure that they are the only ones who made the best in Australia. Uh, what is that noise? That's a cuckoo clock. It's not me. <laughs> I can assure you. Oh, thank God you told me. I thought, thought I was you were going, going bonkers. I thought, you were going I thought my, my new hearing aid had gone bonkers. Oh, he's just bought that. Off the back of the success of The Far Paradise, the sisters had a meeting with Frank Thring, head of Hoyt's Theatres. He sent for the girls and offered them to work for him. And he offered them £500 a week. And they turned and uh, laughed at him. Wasn't it dreadful? Paulette felt that turning him down was a big mistake. For those three... Arrogant girls, it must have been like a slap in the face to him. In retrospect, it was a huge mistake and it really affected the rest of their career and their lives. 
No, well, I've taken the top two. I'll just see if this thing's going round. It appears to be. It's, it's, it's all new. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I came into the picture about 1928. Hmm. Neville Macken was a retired grazier and he funded the making of the cheetahs just as sound was arriving in Australia. In fact, Neville's interview was the first ever oral history I'd conducted. Yes, right from the start I was in on the cheetahs. They didn't start it until my money came into it. So the cheetahs was filmed first as a silent, um, and that was two years after the American part talkie, The Jazz Singer, which was released in 1927 in America and 1928 in Australia, had triggered a, a worldwide revolution from silent to sound filmmaking. And The Cheetahs was still a, a romantic drama with, with undertones of Romeo and Juliet, but it was influenced very much by crime films, mid to late 1920s crime films. I see. So you, you weren't only involved with the, the talkie edition. You, you started it right from the silent. That's right, yeah, on the silent. When we'd practically finished the silent, we, we decided to put some scenes in it with talkie, and that's why we went down to Melbourne. Hmm. The birth of sound for the McDonough sisters was incredibly painful. There was virtually no sound equipment in Australia at that time. You know, I'm talking about sound production equipment and what there was was expensive. So like another producer before them, they went to Melbourne uh, to a studio called Vercalion and they filmed three sound on disc sequences. Two of them were dialogue sequences and the other one largely featured a song sung by Isabel at the piano. But the problem with the film in 1929, when it was previewed at a, at a Sydney theatre, was the monitoring of the sound. Paula Dornan. It was the first talk he uttered and heard, you know? Well, it was like a spontaneous spark through the whole audience. They, they just all started clapping. And suddenly, without any warning, it was a love scene between Isabel and the boy. These last days have been the happiest in my life. Uh, and he's, he's looking to Isabel and she's looking to him. This is not goodbye. I love you, dear, and I want you to... And the mouth going, not a sound coming out. The disc had stopped completely? I don't know. The sound just went. It paralyzed the theatre. They don't feel sorry about it, or they started to laugh. And the whole audience went into a fool's laugh. Look, if the talkies had not come, they, they were had it made. Mm. They really did. By the mid to late 1920s, silent film as an art had really reached a, a level of perfection. There were a lot of people that lamented the fact that sound films came along because they felt that it destroyed the fantastic illusion that silent films could create, that kind of web of charm that a lot of audiences were drawn into. That was the, uh, the beginning of a very, very bad period. See, we were so stupid. We were young, we had nobody in charge of us. Mm. Had we had a manager or somebody to tell us what to do? Yes. 
We'd have been on top of the world for yes, those. Yes, yes. That's what I did talent. When we made films, we used to everything we earned, we used to put on these huge parties, great parties, 150 people, all in full evening dress. Yes, but didn't And would go on all night from dawn the next day, never end. But you, you put money that you got from uh, the and to the other into the yes. yes. Yes, but what I'm trying to say is we spent our money to the saving this day. The McDonough sisters' final feature, Two Minutes Silence, was a radical departure from the first three films that they'd made, the first three features. And it was adapted from an anti-war play by a journalist, later politician, called Leslie Halen. And it told of four people from different backgrounds who gather in a London drawing room on Armistice Day in the early 30s to remember their traumatic experiences of war. You could say it was revolutionary in Australian films and a very, very big mistake because I don't think the Australian public were prepared for it. I think by then that Isabel realised that the writing was on the wall financially. There had already been several years of struggle. They'd had to give up Dremoyne House. Phyllis was working by then as a journalist and was, I think, probably talking about going to New Zealand, which, which she did. And uh, not long after the completion of Two Minute Silence, Isabel got married. Too beauty. Yes. Um, they didn't like Isabel <laughs> getting married at all. They were very down on it, you know. Why was that? Oh, well, I, it meant breaking up of a family, I think. The McDonough films were about women who were confident enough about their role in life, not to be constrained by parental or older generation expectations. They, they themselves were independent, confident women who were setting out to make a difference in terms of Australian filmmaking, and for a short, vivid period, they certainly did. See, my father was the um, surgeon, J.C. Williamson. And every great artist, uh, they could take them overseas anywhere. He had to, if they were sick, he had to deal with them. He was the only surgeon. I was born on the ship, The Sisters of Silent Film was narrated and produced by Graham Shirley and Miyuki Okiranta. The sound engineer was Richard Gervin. This is the History Listen on RN, and up next, we're going high diving. Even with her hands tied together, Annette Kellerman could dive from a 50-foot cliff with precision and grace. Braver still, she boldly expressed her sexuality at a time when that was heavily frowned upon. Her attitude, as much as her stunts and her film career, made her a household name in the early 1900s. But after Kellerman left Hollywood and returned to Australia, she slipped into obscurity. Curator at the National Film and Sound Archives, Beth Taylor, wants to change that. She believes today, more than ever, Kellerman's name and the story of how she smashed expectations needs to be revived. There are some badass women in history. And I will say this for myself, I was never doubled once for anything I did in a film, doesn't matter what it was. Did you dive into a crocodile pit? Oh, that, oh, that was honest to God, you know. I really was thrown into those crocodiles. 
Annette Kellerman, she basically lived about five lifetimes in one. Her life almost seems like it was made up to me now. I read about it and I just think, how did one woman do all of these things? But it does really show that women had an incredibly important role to play in cultural life in the beginning of cinema and we only just reading about it now. Kellerman very much behaved like we might expect a diva to behave as well. There was one time when she was involved in a high-speed car chase with police in New York because she was running late for a show. So she did very much feel like she could behave in a way that befitted her stardom, I think. She was just so cheeky. She didn't drink and she didn't smoke and she was a vegetarian well before that would have been popular. And she used to say, you know, darling, I really am one in a million. Darling, I really am one in a million. It feels to me like she's the woman that we need to be reading about. To those of you who know me now as the diving Venus, Queen of the Mermaids, Neptune's daughter and whatnot, this may sound very strange, but the truth was that I was terrified at the thought of swimming. If my father had not been persistent, I'm sure I could never have overcome my childish dread and fears. But for his wisdom, I might have been hobbling about on crutches today. How to Swim by Annette Kellerman 1918. Kellerman was born in Sydney in 1886 at a time when women's roles were very much expected to be in the home. My family had no intention of making a mermaid of me, amateur or professional. But my swimming came about as a means of curing a very distressing condition of my legs. She was diagnosed with rickets and then swimming was prescribed as one of her treatments. I first loved the ocean when I was a child because it made me curious. I wondered whether it really went down and down, if it would hold me up. I wanted to know what made it blue and to feel the white on a wave. My father told me that all animals swam except the monkey and the pig, and I didn't want to stay on their level. She, in fact, held world women's records for swimming, including the 100-yard swim. She actually held all the records because I believe that there were only two records available to women at that time because it was just all starting out. She really was at the cusp. The swimming moved somewhat seamlessly into the performing because in those days, swimming was so new. So we were just coming up with new swim styles like the Australian crawl and the trudgeon. And so she would give an exhibition of how to perform those strokes. And then that moved on to her sort of performing tricks and dives and that sort of thing. And also she was showing ballet dance and diving and swimming and she was started to do wire walking. It was very much an era when people were kind of expected to be a bit of a jill of all trades. So Kellerman was kind of perfect for that. She must have been incredible to watch. All in all, I was doing very well as a professional swimmer in my native country, but Australia, though big in area, was not big enough in population to satisfy our ambition. In England were more people, more theatres, 
and more money to be earned by professional swimmers. 1905, she moved to London with her father. She was doing marathon swimming and she was needing to swim across, say, the English Channel and was finding that the... Firstly, it was impossible for her to wear a bathing suit as, as women knew them in those days. The bathing girl of our popular beaches only a few seasons ago wore shoes, stockings and bloomers, skirts, corsets and a dinky little cap. Not only in matters of swimming, but in all forms of activity, women's natural development is seriously restricted and impaired by social customs and all sorts of prudish and puritanical ideas. Water is 700 times as heavy as air, and to attempt to drag loose-flowing cloth garments of any sort through it is like having the biblical millstone around one's neck. There was no way she could be a competitive swimmer wearing those um, garments, so she adapted a men's swimming costume so that she could swim. That caused a real stir for people at the time to see a woman wearing um, a figure-hugging garment that didn't completely cover her up. So that was sort of the beginning of her, I guess, her interesting relationship with sexuality in, like, a public arena. Darling, I really am one in a million. In 1910, a professor from the Harvard University Gymnasium did a study of 10,000 American women to find out if women's changing role in society was changing their bodies. And he found that Annette Kellerman had what he called the perfectly formed body. Of course, from that time on, I was known as the perfect woman. And if you think that's good, oh. Annette Kellerman was not happy to be known as the perfectly formed woman. And she said later in life that she found that title to be ghastly. Control gives poise, and poise is the essence of all beauty. Why? Because it establishes dignity. And beside dignity, the frail marks of superficial beauty are insignificant. Putting a tape around the body does not tell what that body can do. It all depends on the kind of tissue beneath the tape measure. However, when she did move into doing silent films, that line of her being the perfect woman was always used in all of the publicity. Uh, so it really very much followed her around for the rest of her career. For a long time, I'd had an idea that I couldn't develop in any way except through motion pictures. So I practically peddled myself among the various moving picture studios. I sought new worlds to conquer, or at least new worlds sought me. Kellerman is known as being the first woman to appear nude on film. So that was in the 1916 silent film called A Daughter of the Gods. It was a three-hour epic and it cost a million dollars to make in, in those days. That was a, a huge amount of money and it made a lot of money at the box office. People really wanted to go and see it. And I'm sure that a big reason for that was that she was billed as uh, appearing nude. So she does have a wig 
that she wears that that covers some of her body, but you still see an awful lot, even by today's standards, actually. It's quite, it's quite shocking. And I guess at that time, the First World War was happening and it seems like society was really taking a big leap at that time. What I love best of all in A Daughter of the Gods was when I dived off a swing high up, 70 feet over the water. I swung backwards and forwards over a gorgeous mirror-like lagoon. Back and forth I swung until the swing arrived at its highest peak, then I dived from it into the crystal clear water. Kellerman married, she never had children, but she did a lot of things that women were not expected to do in those days, such as she had a real interest in driving cars and she liked fast cars. She had her own cream Buick and she was named the woman of, the, of, a, of an automotive parade in New York. She just was never doing what was expected of her, but she managed to do it with such a flair that she didn't seem to really get into too much trouble. So the other thing about Kellerman is that she really understood the publicity machine and there is a story that a lot of people say is true that in 1907 she was arrested at a beach in Boston for being unsuitably attired when she wore a one-piece bathing suit. So that actually hasn't been proven by things like court records and newspaper articles from that time but it does show that she really understood how to get noticed, how to cause just enough controversy that her films were going to be a smash hit but not actually get herself into hot water. And I think both men and women kind of loved that about her. So we've got this fantastic Cine Sound movie tone newsreel from the 1930s when uh, Kellerman came back to Australia having spent a lot of time in Europe and America and she arrived off the ship and people were all waiting to see this famous movie star and in the newsreel she says... Now, what have I been doing... Well, the last three years, I've been trooping all over Europe. I wrote a book called Fairy, Fairy Tales of the, of the South, South Seas. Seas. And now I've started a novel. Of course, I don't think that'll ever see the light of day. Because nowadays, nowadays a, novel a novel has, has to, to have, have so much sex appeal. And, and I don't, don't know a thing about that. that. And you see the people behind her just tittering, <laughs> laughing, and, and probably turning very red. And then she goes on to say... First of all, I'm going camping for four whole weeks. I'm not going to wear any clothes. Now you know what I mean. It's quite sensational to see a woman saying that in a newsreel in the 1930s in Australia. And I'm awfully glad to be back in Aussie again. It's a real thrill. A lot of people have never heard of Annette Kellerman. In the States, she does have a star named after her on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But other than that, she very much did kind of escape into obscurity. I think that Kellerman was the fact that she was starring in silent films and she didn't make the leap over into talkies. I think that that probably does have a lot to do with why she didn't kind of keep her fame. She's an example of a woman who had just lived her best life and followed her dreams and she just had such amazing success. 
She really does deserve to go down in Australian history books. When one leaves the trapeze midway of a vigorous swing, the attitude in which the body enters the water is halfway between the vertical and horizontal. And a skillful diver can do it without disappearing beneath the surface at all. Annette Kellerman, stunt woman, diver, badass, was produced by Anna Kelsey Sugg. The sound engineer was Tim Simons. Annette was played by Belinda McClory. And if you want to learn more about Annette's life, head to the National Film and Sound Archives website and check out the online exhibition Beth Curated, Australia's Fearless Mermaid. And a big thanks to the National Film and Sound Archives for access to their recordings. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Join me again next time for the History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.